This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, September 9th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Today is from the Epistle of 1 John, chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Thank you for being with us this morning. My name is Sam. For the two of you that don't know, welcome. And I am going to get right into it. We're starting a new series, and I'll explain that. Uh, it's a short series and hopefully a, a powerful one. But if you would bow with me, we will ask the Lord to move me out of the way and do what He needs to do. So if you pray with me, Lord... We praise you for your greatness, for your goodness, for your grace, and your overwhelming generosity to us. We humbly, humbly come into your presence this morning as your people, knowing that in ourselves we are unworthy. But you, Lord, have done everything necessary to make us worthy through your Son. And so we celebrate that this morning. We rejoice in that this morning. We rest in that this morning. That we come through faith, not the quantity of our faith or the quality of our faith, but through the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. Jesus, you are Savior and you are Lord, our King. You made all things. You uphold all things. You direct all things. You purchased our lives with your blood so that we might be restored in relationship with you and used, Lord, for your glory in this place. We remember your first coming as a suffering servant, as our hero, and we await your return in all your glory as risen Lord. But Lord, we are still here, waiting. And as we wait, we experience firsthand the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of our families, the brokenness of our own hearts and lives. Pain comes to us all, difficulty comes to us all, death eventually comes to us all. And in these dark moments is when we most strongly long for another country to be with you. So I think of particularly the Edelbrock family this morning, Lord. Friends of this community, friends of people who are here, family of people who attend this church, and the great loss that they tragically experienced in the death of someone who's a mother and a wife and a grandma and a young little daughter who's a niece and a friend and a granddaughter. Lord, I can't imagine pain and the loss that they're experiencing. 
And so frustrated, Lord, as the enemy tries to use these kind of moments to push people away from you. And so I'm thankful that there are people there in their lives that are being a light in this super dark place. Would you give them strength? Would you help the families, particularly the Gallatin family, to just be a light, be a comfort, not by their own strength, but by your Spirit? Father, we pray during this time you will draw this family and many others close to you, that they will find you to be a refuge, a place of strength, a place that clarifies the confusion that they're experiencing right now. The Holy Spirit, bring a comfort and a peace that only you can. It is in this context, Lord, that we come to your word to be reminded of what is true and to have our own hearts examined about what we really believe. So this morning, would you please move me out of the way, Holy Spirit? Speak the words you need to speak, words of comfort, words of conviction, words that you know we individually each need. Overwhelm us this morning, Jesus. Reveal yourself to us, Jesus. Give us a hope beyond hope, Jesus. It's in your glorious name we pray. Amen. You know, when we say amen, it's interesting. We say amen at the end of our prayers a lot, and then occasionally one or two of you say amen during a sermon, and that's okay. I encourage that, actually. And all that means is that is true. You know, when Jesus used to say, truly, truly, I say to you, he also was actually saying, amen, amen, I say to you. So it's okay to affirm things. And I know when you start asking big questions like, am I saved? No one wants to go, amen. So I realize that as we go into this series. So over the next five weeks, we are going to explore some biblical answers to the question, am I saved? I describe them as biblical answers because in truth, all other answers from all other sources really matter very little. We're not saved because I say I am or someone says I am, but because God, the I am, says I am. I love that song, Jesus loves me. This is, I know for the Bible tells me so because sometimes that's all I have. Am I saved? There are a A lot of little questions begged by this one big question. Why do I need saving? What am I saved from? Who is doing this saving? How am I saved? You know, the majority of people in the world believe that they are saved from a bad place by doing good things. Others, that they're saved to a good place by avoiding bad things. But the Bible teaches us that we are saved by God, to God, from God. Which is an interesting thought to sit on. The Bible teaches that there are those who are saved and those who are doomed. There are children of God and children of wrath. There are sheep and there are goats. There are a few people walking the narrow path to life and there are many more people walking the wide path to destruction. That's just Scripture. We ask the question, am I saved? Because the Bible says that there is something to be rescued from. And we know that. We experience that. If not in suffering, certainly in death. Something's wrong here. 
And the Bible says that we are unable and unwilling to rescue ourselves. So we are left to wonder, oh, am I saved? Salvation is the greatest event that changes a person the greatest. It's not just a moment. I believe it is the beginning of many moments. According to the Bible, those who are saved are transformed into new creations. The Bible says that they're restored. The Bible says that they are born again. The prophet Ezekiel describes God saving this way. And I read this passage, I believe, at the end of last week. Ezekiel 36, 25 says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So salvation is a radical heart change. Uh, a change of heart is so much more than just a change of opinion, right? We, we say that a wife had a change of heart. That's not what we're talking about. The heart in the Bible presents or represents the, the, the whole of a person's being, the, the seat of their inner motivations. It's the driver behind decision-making, the heart. So the question is, how do I know if I have a new heart? And Ezekiel seems to say that we have the Spirit of God dwelling there. So when we ask, am I saved? The first question we should probably ask is, do I have God's Spirit within me? Not sure that's an easier question, but maybe it's more specific. Because the first and most important difference between someone who is saved and someone who is unsaved is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a person's heart. Which begs another question, right? How do I know I've been given the Spirit? What's the evidence? Well, the Bible teaches that the Spirit in us, the Spirit in a believer, the Spirit in someone saved, generates something new. Without trying, so to speak. Generates new desires and new understandings and what I'm going to talk a lot about, new heart attitudes that affect our dispositions towards many things. And this is why Paul can write to the Galatian church that the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So without the Spirit, it follows that there is just the flesh. And you do whatever you want to do. But with the Spirit, there is some opposition to your flesh. The flesh doesn't go away, but the flesh is fighting against something. So the presence of the Spirit in many ways means the presence of conflict very deeply in our souls. The Spirit changes our relationship with God, gives us these new spiritual desires, 
And even as we struggle in this conflict between the flesh and the Spirit, because the truth is, any time that you sin, you are giving over to the flesh. So even as we struggle through this tension, this conflict, I believe that this conflict actually reveals the genuineness of one's salvation. That there's a tension there. Now, in other words, if these new heart attitudes are present increasingly but not perfectly, that's important. These new heart attitudes, these new desires, increasing but not perfected, I believe we can be assured that we are saved. Which is something that everyone desires to have assurance of. So over the next five weeks, we're going to ask ourselves some real heart questions, not hard questions, some heart questions, which might be hard to ask. Questions like, what do I believe about God's Son? And again, it's more, what is my heart attitude? What is my disposition at a heart level towards Jesus? And what do I believe about God's holiness? Which is really a question about what do I believe, what's my disposition towards sin? Or what do I believe about God's Word in the Bible? What is this? And what is my disposition at a heart level towards it? And towards God's people and towards God's mission or the world? And I believe collectively these give us some good guidelines to perhaps answer that question. I think it's important that we test the genuineness of our own faith. Now in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, um, if you read that letter, you'll find that in large part, and I mean like half of it, is really a defense of his ministry and his message. Because in the church that he planted, there's a rebellious minority there, and they are challenging the legitimacy of his apostleship. And they are rejecting his message that he preached. And so, as I said, he spends the first seven chapters or so kind of vindicating his ministry, arguing for it, defending it. And then later in his letter, he speaks directly to this rebellious minority, which, again, he'll be speaking to everybody since the letter will be read publicly. And he challenges them to look inward, not outward, and to consider the legitimacy of their own faith. And this well-known passage in 2 Corinthians 13 is somewhat of the inspiration for this series, which says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you'll find out that we have not failed the test. And the question for us all is, are we willing to do that? We're willing to ask some hard questions of our faith or just assume our assurance. These kinds of series aren't real popular. But please know that I'm not speaking as one who is um, able to dismiss these questions myself just because I'm a pastor. I'll give you a little secret. There are many men and likely women in the pulpit today, who are not saved. Really? Really. I don't for a second know the list. 
I'm just suggesting that we be careful judging by appearances everywhere. Now, this series is going to be taken primarily out of the first epistle of John, and it's, this epistle is an excellent tool for our own personal examination. But I know and will warn you that the pride in all of us is likely going to be tempted to respond to the examination wrongly. Some of us will be quite dismissive of it. I don't need an examination. How dare you ask me that question? I'm not asking you the question. I'm asking you to ask yourself the question. Some of us will be deceitful. What do I mean by that? Might be a strong word. Well, I think you will cheat. And you will make the test easy to pass by lowering the standard. I know that as an English teacher who at times gave students their own tests. And strangely, they did very well on them. And still others of us will deflect and will spend most of our time examining the faith of others. Don't do that. We must examine our own heart attitudes because we can't see the hearts of others and we certainly need to use God's perfect examination every time, not our own. So let's see what God's Word has to say. This morning, the first heart attitude I want to test or have us examine is our disposition towards Jesus. Seems obvious, but maybe it'll be less so as we go along. What do we believe about God's Son? Do I admire Jesus? Do I obey Jesus? Do I love Jesus? The Bible teaches us that there's one name given under heaven by which men must be saved. We read that in the book of Acts, and the name is Jesus. Salvation is, according to the book of Hebrews, founded on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He's the author of faith. There is no Christianity, there is no faith without Jesus Christ. John reveals the purpose of writing his epistle very plainly. He does the same in his gospel, as was read this morning in 1 John 5, 11-13. He says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And then he writes, I write these things to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's why he wrote 1 John. So that we'd have some sense of assurance, or perhaps lack thereof. Having life has something to do with believing in the name of Jesus. And I'll argue as we start here that salvation is first and foremost about belief, not behavior. Tim Keller rightly teaches that the gospel is not that, quote, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you've been good. But the gospel is that it doesn't matter if you've been good as long as you believe in Jesus. Now, many of us react to that kind of statement, I think, negatively. It doesn't matter if I've been good. It kind of seems uh, like license, like freedom to do whatever you want. It just doesn't matter. But the point that Pastor Keller is making is one of emphasis, of order of priority, of the true basis of salvation, which is not your behavior. That we are accepted in Christ through faith and therefore we obey. We don't obey so that we are accepted. That's his point. Just as God 
is changing a person's heart, and that precedes belief, I also believe that belief precedes behavior. So what exactly then are we believing about Jesus? Well, there's several things that are important, but they're not the only things. We're believing that He was. We're believing who He is and what He did. And I'll go over those quickly. The first one seems kind of obvious. We first believe that Jesus was. What does that mean? Well, there are many who foolishly but undoubtedly believe Jesus of Nazareth never existed. In fact, you may not know this, but as recent as 2014, the Washington Post ran an article titled, Did Historical Jesus Really Exist? The Evidence Doesn't Add Up. That's a pretty well-known, large-circulated paper. So I won't make assumptions, but I will make several direct assertions. In terms of just practical historical criticism, it's easier to believe Caesar Augustus or even Abraham Lincoln were figments of the imagination than to believe Jesus of Nazareth did not exist. This is where we start. Beyond a reasonable doubt, Jesus was a living person, not a myth, not a legend, not some kind of character in an epic tale of morality. And this is where John begins. And this is first century. People are already doubting whether Jesus was real. If you notice in the very beginning of 1 John, this is what he writes. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. He seems to be going above and beyond to say, Jesus was real. We saw Him. We heard Him. We touched Him. We walked with Him. We can no longer assume that that is what everyone believes. But Christians believe that Jesus was born. Christians, by definition, believe that He was alive. They believe He was crucified on a Roman cross at 33-ish years old, about 2,000-ish years ago. And even though that's an historical fact, it is not universally accepted as true anymore. This is why, again, John can say in 1 John 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God, colon, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So that's where we begin in John's test. We believe Jesus was. But then it goes further. We have to believe who He is. The expression to believe in the name of Jesus that John uses occurs five times in the New Testament and all of them are used by John. They're in his Gospels and twice here in his epistles. And when John speaks of believing in the name, we can also read it as believing in the title of Jesus. To believe in the title of Jesus is to acknowledge Jesus really is who He says He is. Jesus is much more than the Son of a carpenter. He is the Son of God. This is a divine title. Jesus is not only a man. We believe that Jesus is more than a good teacher, more than a good example, more than a tragic 
hero. He is God in the flesh. And the only, the Spirit of God can convince someone of this. Everyone loves Jesus' teacher, admires Him as example, but if you start telling people you believe Jesus is God in human flesh, you are going to get some crooked looks. Don't assume that's what everyone understands what you believe. My friend who was working in a construction job was speaking to a young man in his mid-twenties who had no clue what Easter was about. He said, well, that's about the resurrection of Jesus. And he's like, you believe Jesus rose from the dead? We can no longer assume what seem like basic truths about Christianity. That the culture just believes. Jesus is God in human flesh. The Bible is so explicitly clear about that. Jesus Himself is explicitly clear about that. There are more passages to go to than I can count. The belief in the true identity of Jesus Christ distinguishes those who are saved and those who are not. Again, John says it in 1 John 4, verse 13. He says, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. Fantastic. Tell us. Because He has given us His Spirit. We've been talking about that, John. Okay. How do I know the Spirit's there? And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. That God the Father has sent His divine Son. That's what that means. Whoever confesses that Jesus is, verse 15, the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. That's a test. That's my disposition towards Jesus. He is in us if we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. To believe in the name of Jesus is to believe Jesus is God who took on human flesh. So we believe that He was. We believe who He is. And what else do we believe we believe what Jesus did. Jesus was fully a man and He was fully God. And Jesus, the Son of God, is the Savior of the world by dying on the cross for our sin. This is what John writes in 1 John 2.2. That Jesus is the propitiation, which is the very big word for atoning sacrifice. The one who took God's wrath on the behalf of others. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, anyone who is saved. This belief about Jesus reveals a lot, beginning with, I acknowledge that I need a Savior. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. He saves me from sin. He saves me from Satan. He saves me from certain death. But this isn't just being saved from bad stuff. This is God saving me from God's wrath by His own grace through His own Son. That's what He did. And Jesus' resurrection is proof that God accepted His sacrifice on our behalf. So we believe that Jesus was, we believe He is, and we believe what He did. That Jesus, the Son of God, died for sin and rose from the dead. So that's the belief. When we talk about believing in Jesus there's certain facts, there's certain things that we believe about Jesus. And when you don't have the Spirit of God in you, those three simple facts are 
foolish or questionable. It doesn't mean you fully understand Jesus' incarnation. You don't fully grasp every detail about how his humanity and his divinity work together. I'm not saying it's total and complete understanding, but there is acceptance. So salvation is about believing in the name of Jesus, but it's much more than that. It is certainly trusting him as Savior, certainly living under him as Lord, but it is also about being with Jesus forever. What? Catch this. Jesus didn't just save us from something, just from sin or from hell or from death. He saves us to something, particularly to righteousness, to life, and to himself. Do you know the Apostle John talks about eternal life more than anybody else in the Bible? In his gospel, it's like eternal life, eternal life. In his epistles, eternal life. In his gospel, right, one of the famous verses you'll probably see on some placard at the Seahawks game today as you're watching TV, John 3.16. Same writer, what's he say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not die, would not perish eternally, but have eternal life. Later in the chapter, John 3.36, he also says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And then again, as I said in our main text, to revisit it, 1 John 5.11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this eternal life, this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life, or eternal life, Whoever does not have the Son does not have eternal life. I write these things to you that you believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So the question is, what's eternal life? Well, eternal life in the simplest way is understood as life without future death. When we speak of eternal life, we often refer to heaven, right? It's life in heaven. Did you know that 75% of Americans believe in heaven? Even if 75% of Americans don't believe in Jesus? I guarantee you 100% of that 75% likely believe they're going to heaven. But the majority of people in our country believe in heaven. This place that they probably would describe as eternity. The question for all of us is, what do you imagine eternal life is like? What is that all about? We have all our own visions of heaven, some more fleshly than others. Some of us imagine it's fishing in a lake, and Jesus every now and then walks out on the water and says, hi, did you catch anything? And I'm like, no, but it's sunny perpetually, and you never get tired, and you just catch fish forever. For some of us, it's this feast of foods, and you never get full, and you can just keep tasting different things. For some of it's a meadow you're running through. For some, I guess it's some like, you know, cloud world. Who knows? We have visions of what we think it is. Some less or more biblical than others. We have all of our ideas about Jesus saving us to a place. When we fail to realize, perhaps, that what the Bible teaches us is that we're being saved to His presence. Very different. 
And do we care if there's a difference? And my argument is that those who can answer, am I saved, have a different disposition towards Jesus in this regard. I think John Piper says it wonderfully and convictingly. He says it this way in his book, God is the Gospel. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you'd ever see and all the physical pleasures you'd ever tasted and no human conflict and no natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ is not there? That's a really powerful question. And I believe it reveals a lot about our own hearts as we ask ourselves that question. Because I believe that in heaven, it will be Christ Himself and not His gifts that are our supreme pleasure. And this is what I am convinced when John talks about eternal life is to be our heart disposition towards Jesus. When I think about Jesus. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's completely there today. That's all I think about. Always. That I'm fully arrived and understand this completely. But I, I think that over time, the Spirit increases that understanding and that desire. That at some point in our life, like Paul, we will be ready to say, if not today, maybe tomorrow, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That we will be able to say like, okay, if I'm to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell because I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that's far better. Now, I know we could say that as an escape of our situations. And maybe at some level that's okay. But I'm not talking exclusively about that. It's about getting to the place where you see the world and you see all the things that it offers, even relationships and stuff, and you go, man, I want Jesus more. I want to be with Jesus more. And I think, and I'm not that old, but I think as we get older and we begin to lose some of those things that were really more important to us than Jesus, we begin to believe that a little bit more and maybe understand it a little more clearly. So salvation isn't just about believing in Jesus. It's about being with Jesus. The desire, right? We're talking about heart desires. There's one more thing I want to consider. That it's not just believing Jesus. It's not just being with Jesus. But it's actually about knowing Jesus. Now, when I say that, what I mean is that our disposition towards Jesus, our heart attitude toward Jesus, is more than just knowledge about Jesus. It's not just facts. It's not just cold beliefs. It's actually knowing Jesus, right? Knowing about versus knowing. And maybe that's just a play on words, but I think it's a good one. So let me read one of the scariest passages in Scripture that Jesus taught. It's in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. 
And listen to Jesus' own words. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, and the day he's referring to is the last day, the day of judgment, when all of this is over. He says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now when, even when we test ourselves, right, we can actually, it seems, deceive ourselves. Jesus speaks of the final day when people will come before Him for final judgment. And He seems to indicate that there are some people who are going to act surprised on that day because their true hearts are going to be revealed. They may have spoken the right words. They may have lived the right way. They may even believe a few right things. But Jesus, He says, is going to reveal them as frauds. That's a terrifying text for false prophets or for false converts. For the believers, this passage, I think, actually brings comfort, as strangely as that might sound, because it reveals that God can't be fooled. No fakes are getting in to His family. But what it shows us really clearly is that knowing about Jesus isn't the same as knowing Jesus. And there's a lot of people that know about Jesus. But knowing Jesus is more than learning facts about Jesus. Right? They say, Lord. And there are certainly things that are factual, as I've shared, that we need to believe. We should believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, fully God and fully man, perfect representative, perfect sacrifice. We must believe that Jesus was sent to save the world. We must believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross in place of my sins. We must believe that He died because it was the only way to remove our guilt and shame and satisfy God's wrath. I couldn't do it for myself and no one could do it for me but Him. We must believe that He was raised on the third day, that He is seated on the throne, exalted as Lord of all. There are certainly things that we must believe. But the Scriptures show us that even the demons are orthodox in many things. So everyone who believes will declare Jesus as Lord, but not everyone who says Jesus is Lord actually believes. That's what that text shows us. So it's more than just facts. More than just intellectual assent. But it's also more than feelings. Many of us struggle with the facts of the Gospel, and some of us struggle with the feelings. I don't feel in love with Jesus. I don't feel this affection. It's interesting, these guys say, Lord, Lord, right? We talked about that when we spoke of Jesus addressing Paul. These people who Jesus ultimately casts out not only have some set of beliefs, they also have some sense of emotional zeal for God. They say, Lord, Lord, means there's emotions involved here. Despite all their excitement for the things of God, Jesus says that they're outside the kingdom. 
So we go, how do we explain this? Isn't it, isn't, it, isn't it a feeling? Isn't a heart attitude a feeling? I would argue it's not exclusively um, mental. It's not exclusively emotional. Both those things influence, but it's also neither one of those things completely. Our feelings are not the same as heart attitudes. We don't say, am I saved? Well, I feel like I am. I feel like I am. Well, what about when you really screw up? How do you feel then? Or when you have a big major doubt, how do you feel then? Thomas doubted. There are many disciples who doubted standing before the resurrected Jesus. So if it's based on feeling alone, we're all going to struggle at some point. Often our enthusiasm and our feelings are really just the flesh. All the tears and many of the tickles and tingles don't necessarily come from God, is my point. Contrary to popular belief, More emotion does not necessarily make us more spiritual, though some of us could do with a little more emotion. But also, knowing Jesus, it's more than facts and feelings. It's also more than doing. That's what it shows here. When they say, did we not do? These people present evidence for their devotion, the works that they have done. And what's frightening is that these false Christians are able to accomplish a lot of things for Jesus. They're able to prophesy. They're able to deliver some kind of spiritual message. They're able to preach, it seems, correct doctrine at some level. They're able to cast out demons. They're able to do many wonderful deeds in the name of Jesus. They're even able, it seems, to lead others to salvation, and yet they remain outside of Christ themselves. So when all is said and done, this passage is scary because it asks us to identify the true basis for our salvation. The true reason we believe in Jesus and what we believe in Jesus and why we trust Jesus. And for some of us, we rely on what we know and others what we feel and still others what we've done. But Jesus seemed to say that eternal life and faith in Him has nothing to do with what we feel or understand, or do, primarily. When these men come before Jesus, He doesn't say, hey, you don't understand me enough, or you're not excited about me enough, or you didn't work hard for me enough. He simply says, I never knew you. And it's the same thing He says in John 17.3 when He's praying. He says, this is eternal life that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so the question for all of us is really direct. Do you know Christ that way? Do you know Christ that way? Because you can stop it, do I believe certain things about Christ? You can even say, do I feel certain things? I've done certain things for Christ. But do you know Christ? Do you know Him? These men come before Jesus and they do not have eternal life because they are not known by Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't say, you never knew me. Jesus says, I never knew you. He never revealed Himself to them. He never drew drew them to Him. The bottom line is this, when these men go to be judged as evidence for their devotion, all they have is themselves. 
This is what I have to offer you, Jesus. Aren't I awesome? And Jesus' response is, that's not salvation. That's not faith. Christianity is about Jesus. Christianity is about forgetting ourselves. Christianity is about surrendering, saying, I have nothing to offer Jesus, and you have everything to offer me. Galatians 4.9 puts it really well. Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. He describes their pre-Jesus time. You were devoted to false gods. Then he says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. To be known by God. So how do I know if I'm known by God? Well, I'm not sure there's a perfect test. I'm not sure there's a perfect question I can give you. But let me give you just a little moment to consider your own faith. Not the faith of someone else. And not to say, I got faith. Ask yourselves questions. I don't care how long you've been a believer. If you are a believer. How do I know if I'm known by God? Well, when you consider, when you're all by yourself, and you consider the quality or the acceptability of your faith, Where does your mind go? Does it first go to how much you understand? Do you consider how much you feel? Do you consider the accomplishments that you've done? Do you think about your failures? When you think of, man, am I faithful? What's my faith based on? If if your mind goes to yourself... You're either not a believer or you're a believer who doesn't understand the gospel. Your mind should be drawn away from yourself and immediately toward the person and work of Jesus Christ. Always. And when you consider the end of your life, when you consider your impending death, which is coming to us all, when you consider your greatest hope beyond that moment, beyond any suffering, is it recreation with your friends? Or is it resting in the arms of Jesus? And when you consider standing in judgment before your God, what do you hear yourself saying you have to offer? Is it nothing? Because for the Christian, my prayer is that you will say, all I have is Christ. That's all I have. All I need is Christ. All I want is Christ. All I have is Christ. So when we talk about questioning our disposition towards Christ, that's what we're talking about. And it's not imperfection, but it should be increasing. It should be increasing. And I pray it does for all of us. That's test number one. Now you know what I get to beat myself up with all week. There you go. And that's why we come to the table. Let's pray.